This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Cholley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, on the Times Radio app. And Food Week continues all this week. That's not a lot of politics. And coming up on today's episode, we are going to hear from the head chef at Chequers, the Prime Minister's grace and favour. Home Graham Howarth tells me about Boris Johnson's barbecues, Barack Obama's barbecues... And the Prime Minister, who fancied himself as a bit of a chef. All that coming up in just a moment. But first, as ever, let's take a look at the news with today's columnist panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. And what with it being Food Week, a very special foodie duo. Uh, joining me in the studio is writer and broadcaster specialising in wine and whiskey, Abby Moulton. Abby, Hello. how are you? I'm very well, thank you. And beaming in from outer space, the Times' very own restaurant critic, Giles Cohen. Hello, Giles. Hello, Matt. When you said a very special foodie duo like that, I only heard up to a very special foodie Jew, and I thought you were announcing me in a very unusual way. <laughs> <laughs> See, if you'd been in the studio rather than relying on Zoom, that wouldn't have happened, you see. Anyway, n- nice to have you here, Giles. Where in the world are you? Uh, I'm in glamorous Kentish town. Oh, lovely. Good. Very good. Very, very good. Um, let's talk, first of all, about meat. And should we all be going vegan or vegetarian? Is, are those options working? Um, I spoke to the food minister, Mark Spencer, earlier. He and asked him if he was reducing his meat intake for environmental reasons. This is what he said. No, I mean, I think there's lots we can do, actually, to improve the footprint of, of, of global uh, meat production. And actually, you know, it's very easy to say the easy answer is to legislate or to regulate or to, con- or to uh, try and convince people to not eat red meat. But actually, it can make up a really important part of a balanced diet. Yeah, he didn't seem very keen on that. I got the feeling that he was probably still into the meat. Is it viable to have a decent diet not eating meat, Abby? Ooh, well, I mean, if we're talking about diet and we're talking about health, then there are a lot of people who are very willing to convince you that you can get all of your protein from lentils. Um, I think diet-wise, possibly. Um, It's the environmental aspect that is actually questionable. What is better, eating locally sourced meat versus flying avocado over from South America? That's a good question. Where do you stand on this, Giles? Um, You've cut back a bit on your meat, haven't you? Say what? You've cut back on your meat eating, haven't you? 
Did you tell me yes, that? Yes, I have. Over the, I sort of imagine that all educated people have. I, I mean, uh, I, 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 I might be wrong, but it's the sense that I get right from my columns and stuff. I, I can't bear to listen to any government minister say anything about food when they have let down the country and the children in the future in the ways that they have in the, in the, in the rowing back on those handful of good things that were going to come out of the government food report by Henry Dimbleby that Boris it was one of the few things he was going to do was going to put a 9pm watershed on uh, on advertising, uh, you know, fast food to protect kids from it, to do something about the bog offs, all of, and they just didn't, they don't get, they're afraid to do anything and they're so tenuous with the Red Wall to do anything that looks remotely sort of uh, big government that, that we're, they're just not going to tackle this obesity process. And when he goes, Oh no! You can eat loads of red meat. No, he's he's wrong. I I I wouldn't. I, the veganism thing was a massive craze that's sort of gone. The vegan restaurants all open, and for three years I reviewed them a bit, but they've gone because veganism is is rubbish, and nobody wants to live like that really, apart from <laughs> wacko, just up oil tattoo people. But but the, the 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 fact that we have to eat a bit less meat, which people like Jamie Oliver, mainstream people, have been saying for years, absolutely yes, just for environment, for health, and animal welfare. I, I eat it maybe maybe three times a week now I'd eat meat and I'd eat relatively small amounts of it. It's not, there was a time when I had a fried breakfast and then a pork pie and then a big steak dinner. And I just, I just, <laughs> nobody, but Donald Trump does that anymore. <laughs> Abby, is it, have you seen that, that the, the, the vegan restaurant craze has been and gone? Absolutely. I think we kind of went through the motions with it, didn't we? It was all the raw food and it was all very, very healthy and very righteous. And then it moved into the vegan junk food. Vegan food doesn't have to be super healthy. You can process it and you can make it look like chicken and you can make it taste like chicken. I think now maybe it is a little bit more about balance, um, but I think it's interesting as well, the idea of what eating a lot of meat looks like. Because I would say I don't eat a lot of meat, but when I say that, I mean I have it every six weeks. And so when I hear wow. someone say, I don't eat much meat, you know, I, I don't have it every day anymore. It's, it's interesting to know different people's perception. Exactly. Is it because everyone is now eating burrata? It's because everybody, every goddamn Russian is serving burrata. Everybody's eating burrata. Now explain what's going on. The, the, the world is turning against burrata. Something that I'd not really, a craze I hadn't even really realised was happening. Okay, burrata gate. So, um, burrata is delicious, I guess, if if you have it in the right way. It's quite indulgent. It used to be a treat to find on menus. And suddenly, it's everywhere. And um, I've been sort of a little bit in my post-Barata era for a while, um, but I'm still seeing it kind of increase in uh, in its notion on menus. So um, we have had a couple of articles published lately, um, one that has really taken the Twitter sphere by storm. Um, I think it's called Barata Big Fat Blobs of Boring, and I have to say I agree. Metro said Barata is cancelled. Uh, <laughs> the Independent says people are surprisingly divided over Barata as debate oozes online. Uh, where do you stand on this important Italian cheese debate, Giles? It's, it's interesting. As you used the word cancelled, and I thought, well, burrata is fat and white, and it's been around for a long time. So, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's, uh, it, I think, burrata. Okay, this, 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 this is a complicated issue again. Not as complicated as the vegan thing. It's, it's straightforward. I, I, had, I first saw burrata about fifteen years ago at Locanda Locatelli in London, where the great Giorgio Locatelli says, "Giles, I bring you the most delicious delicacy in all of Puglia." And he arrives with this blob that looks like a mozzarella, surrounded with beautiful little sort of Sicilian tomatoes and amazing. Uh, Ligurian olive oil and you cut in he cut into it for me and I looked at this mozzarella and it oozed out this sort of cheesy cream and with those little acidic tomatoes this is the most end it was about 40 quid or something on the menu 
Uh, I think Giorgio paid for it. That's the deal when they bring things out of the chefs. Um, and it was amazingly delicious. Oh, this is really great. And it great. And but like all things, um, you know, like avocados, like like smoked salmon. The problem arises when everybody wants to eat what the rich eat. So they just they farm the crap out of the west of Scotland and ruin the fisheries for a thousand years to create rubbish smoked salmon for people to get on delivery. Uh, they do the avocados. They just or quinoa. These tiny little products that they go. To, they just raise the whole of the rainforest in Peru to grow nothing but avocados. Everybody dies, and we get these crappy t- avocados that don't taste of anything. Now suddenly restaurants all have to sh- provide. Uh, uh, um, burrata and it, they are little blobby things are boring and it's restaurants sort of signaling you know, we're classy and they'll put that in with one of those barely red unripe Tesco tomatoes or something uh, and, and 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 instead of the Ligurian olive oil you'll get a tub of mazzola a spread all over it with some with some crappy bread from Sainsbury's and no and then that is that's over and that is that is the point and it's it's a sad thing but it's, it's a, these little delicacies as long as they are innovations of, of the well widely traveled cosmopolitan rich they're delicious as soon as you try and give them to everybody they, they become boring the product sound it goes down and they die <laughs> wow that's i hadn't really thought about it like that abby i think it's also in the understanding of how it should be used because it is such a trendy product at the moment people aren't kind of thinking about how it works and how it works with flavors so a good burrata exactly as giles has just described can be a thing of joy and it's got that cool that creaminess it's quite neutralizing so if you have a high acid dish then it goes really beautifully something like blood orange you need some texture because burrata doesn't really have much flavor or texture um and so use it but think about what you're putting it with now uh, one thing i wanted to ask you about because we were talking about on the show yes today uh we did we were speaking to people who run pubs and restaurants and things around the country and we talked about how they were struggling to find people to to work there and i can't remember one of them basically said that in other countries if you go to a restaurant in france or italy there are people in their 30s 40s 50s working there mm-hmm. and it's seen as a career and a job and i suddenly thought that's so true in a way that in the uk we just expect actually young french and italians to come here and work for you know in their 20s and then clear off again Yeah. And I think one of the things you really see when you go somewhere nice, if you go somewhere like Claridge's or the Langham, you will find that the staff there are older. They will be in their 40s and 50s. They are people who have made a career out of being really, really good and really dedicated. Um, I mean, there are several reasons why that's only in those establishments and not the growing trend. Money, the the main one. Exactly. And it's hard. It's hard work. Backbreaking. Jos, you've written about the fact that um, because the Prince of Wales, Prince William, had a spell working in a mobile burger bar. Yeah. Well, I I, I was thought, given that we have these famous staff shortages and the problem attracting people to work in restaurants and they're closing because of it, uh, the, the wages are going up and up and up. It's becoming problematic to find, you know, chefs. Chefs, can you can they can they can ask sort of 55, 60 grand young chefs without that much experience. Extraordinary, which was twice what they would have been getting three or four years ago. Uh, and waiters, they have to pay more and more. I thought, frankly, with the civil list being sort of shrunk and, and uh, opportunities and nobody wants royals on Netflix anymore, it's they're probably all going to have to end up working in restaurants. <laughs> and I'm not surprised. I mean, they, they, they will do reasonably well. well they could be, uh, they could be like they're in Disneyland it. when the princesses come in, you know, because you, you, you can book like a, a table. <laughs> <laughs> but it could be real princesses. They just sort of come in and walk around and say, oh, you're having a nice lunch. Buckingham Palace would make a great theme park. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely... Oh, no, but you see, if you then hit the nail on that, then they, you're quite right. They would come around and say, are you having a nice lunch? They'd be coming around, they'd, they'd hand you your food and they'd say, enjoy. And you'd want to punch them in the nose. And then they'd come around every four seconds saying, how is everything? Is everything okay? And he <laughs> away, leave me alone. <laughs> 
That is the most irritating thing. Now, the other thing, I wanted to share this story, partly because I just really enjoyed it from yesterday, and to see if you've come across similar things, particularly with your background in your hotel TV show, uh, Giles. Uh, so this is Eddie McKeever, was on the show yesterday. He runs McKeever Hotels in Northern Ireland, and he told uh, this story about something that happened to him. I actually had a guest one time. They were on part of a tour group, and they were going out for the day, and one guy didn't turn up, and the tour guide asked me to give the room a call. So I phoned the room. The guy answered, sounded very confused. Um, he said, was he okay? And he was, I'm in a and said, I'm, I'm stuck in my room and I don't know how to get out. And he didn't know his way out. And I said, well, where are you at? Are you on the bed at the minute? He said, yeah. Um, he said, well, if you look to your left, there's two doors. He said, yeah, um, one's the bathroom. Yeah, I've not been in there. And he, I said, well, the other room isn't, isn't on the way out. That's how you get out. And he said, right. And he aimed and out a bit more and said, can, can I open that door? I said, yeah, it's a problem with the door. And he said, well, it says do not disturb on it. And I don't know if I can go. And I said, well, that's actually your do not disturb sign to me. So uh, you can uh, you can't go out that, and that door now if you like. Yes. Oh, so. that's really good. I mean, it might be the best story we've ever had on the show. Oh, bless that sweet man. Yeah. Bless that sweet man. Um, that's That's brilliant. Charles, have you ever been trapped in a hotel by the do not disturb sign? Uh, no, that is one of the great, well, it's one of the, 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 the great, great things. Everything about it is lovely. It's the fact that he obeyed the sign. But people in hotel rooms treat them like rubbish, mostly. People, rock stars throw uh, uh, TVs out of the window. We all sort of leave our towels lying around and do unspeakable things in the bathroom and, and make a terrible... And this bloke sitting there literally obeying all the signs. Who, in a, for example, who reads the sign which says in the event of a fire, go to this meeting place? Nobody. There's a fire, you jump out the window. This guy's <laughs> obeying everything. Uh, it's really, really lovely. Um, I, I sympathise though, and I did 25 episodes of Amazing Hotels. Um, uh, I did this, this this BBC Two show, travelling around the world with Monica Letty, going to these hotels, and they do because you're away from home, and then particularly if you're in holiday, on holiday, you walk in. How does it all work? You feel you can feel a bit discombobulated. I can get very very confused uh, in hotels, and for for example, it's almost it, it takes an hour to turn the lights out, and the posher the hotel, the worse it is. <laughs> There's never yeah. just a master switch where you can turn the lights out. It's you've got, and then you get all the lights out except the one under the bed or the one in the bar. And if you and you stay hours and hours, and one light goes on and then the other one comes back on, and and or, or it's a trip light. So you think, well, I'll get into bed and I'll wait for it to go off because I've probably set it off on a motion sensor and then it's still going. And then when you do get all the lights off, there's always a second light on the TV is really bright. Or there's there's the, the thermostat has a light on. And then the thermostat, you could never get the temperature right. And you sit there, does, uh, does, does plus mean colder or hotter? And you stand there. <laughs> taps, taps in a hotel bathroom. No two hotel bathrooms have the same type of tap. And you know, you stand there with your hands under it waiting for the sensor to bring it on. That doesn't work. So then you push the thing and then you and then you turn the thing and it shoots out of a hole that you weren't expecting it to. And then there's always they put hand cream and soap next to each other. That's more like a restaurant, you know, the thing in the restaurant toilet. And you go, which is which? And you go spank and you hit it. And first of all, it flies out and hits you in the flies, and you come out of the restaurant looking like God knows what. And it, but it's always the, the moisturizer first. They never label them. Everything everything is just incredibly complicated and, and discombobulating. So it's not impossible that I would that I would sit 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 there. Yeah. I've definitely stayed in hotel, maybe during party conferences where possibly I've gone back to the room after having had a drink and woken up in the morning. And when they do the, the sort of the wardrobes and the door and it's all black mm -hmm. and you can't really work out 
how to get out. Yeah, I've definitely had that. You kind of you you bump into the bathroom and then you bump into the wardrobe. But then, thankfully, you know, you tend to bump into another door and you do open it, and it is the way out. There's also all of the identical hallways. It's quite difficult to find the room, let alone get out of it. I always, from experience, I know I always take a photo of the room number Mm -hmm. so that when returning. That's Later. a life hack. That's yeah. a great life hack. Wow, well, Matt, you, you're really leaning into your drinking there, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> photos of everywhere you've been, because who knows what state you'll be in. <laughs> Take a photo of the door number. It always works, works every time. Works every time. Particularly because you like you go you, you go in and you dump your stuff and you leave, and that thing that person told you, oh, you're in four oh six. Well, you get, how are you going to remember that? I'm now hours imagining later? Oh, no, twelve absolutely. o'clock at I mean, night. Lots of people. Absolutely. Just... I have to take a photo of my children in case I'm going to do school <laughs> pick up after lunch. <laughs> Let's take uh, more of a look now at the food trends which we might see over the coming months. Uh, Vari Russell is founder of the Food Marketing Experts. In fact, came on the show last year to explain the upcoming food trends like this. The kind of key trends that we're seeing through for next year are flavors from Korea and Japan both in terms of the spice influences and the styles and flavours that they produce in those countries. And then they're taken on a journey and given a bit of a twist to, you know, be accommodated by each country's different palettes. And Vari's back uh, with us. Hi, Vari. Uh, yeah, very good. So uh, Korean and Japan, you also said uh, more seaweed, uh, more low and no alcohol. That's probably right. Uh, but you did talk, also talk up veganism. So how right were you based on what you said a year ago, do you think? Well, I, no one really expected the financial situation we're all in. So I think we're at the moment, we're quite lucky to have food on our shelves. And that's something that's not going to change due to Brexit and due to um, the paperwork that's been put in place. So I didn't get it all right by any stretch of the imagination. But um, yeah, there's some really exciting trends that we're seeing coming through. Low no is definitely not going away. Tesco's that's low and no alcohol drinks. Yeah. yeah. So, low um, no. Mm. Yeah, it's a whole new category that is thriving and um, record sales in Tesco's have seen a 25% higher demand for the low-no category outside of dry January, which is historically when we all used to enjoy our low-no drinks. Um, The other food trends we're seeing are plant-based seafood alternatives. Um, There is less less of a demand for... Fake fish. Fake fish, yeah. Or kind of plant seaweed related again oh okay um, so that, that gives trying... you like the taste of the sea yeah oh, um, interesting. And, and those umami flavors that we are looking for um there we're also seeing a, an increase in drinks with vitamins in so there is the whole drinks market is kind of changing and we're seeing things where we've got mushroom coffee so drinks with added benefits so whether <laughs> <Sorry>. it is <laughs> so i was with you up until mushroom coffee valley uh, abby what do you think is coming down the track I mean, I absolutely... Having seen off Barata. Having seen off Barata. So uh, the low-no category is interesting, and it's one that I'm a fan of. I write about uh, wine and whiskey. I write about booze. Um, Booze, fortunately or unfortunately, flows through my veins for a great deal of the week. Um, And I actually, you know, I'm not someone who can kind of really handle it. I do get hangovers. So the no-low category I'm loving. Um, What I'm enjoying is seeing it move back a little bit. Away from being 0.01... We're now seeing things like 20% tequila. So by the time Uh, you've mixed it down, you get, you know, it's a little bit. You still get the flavour. What about you, Giles? What's your big trend coming down the track? 
My big strength, I, I, I'm not into no-no. I mean, I think that's just, you, you just drink less. If you can't drink less, then you've got a massive problem and you don't need some <laughs> daft product made up by a marketing department, I think. I think it's just cashing in on the crapulence of the nation. I think that is daft. Uh, I, I, I think what she wasn't wrong about the Korean thing and the Japanese thing last year. I think Filipino restaurants, I know okay. they're opening a bit. That's the thing we haven't really seen. And I think there is a... There is a will to improve Mexican food in in Britain. It's been it's been honking for years. It's just and and but there are there is great cooking to be had in Mexico. We tried being all fancy with like Peruvian restaurants and stuff. I think they'll be they'll be they'll be posh. And anchovies will continue strong. And I think also leeks are big. I don't know if you can invest in those, but I take that anchovies and leeks. That were the food writers Abby Moulton and Giles Collin. And of course, you can read Giles in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next. We're going cooking at Checkers with the Prime Minister's head chef. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Tony Blair hosted George W. Bush and Richard Madeley, albeit on separate occasions. Gordon Brown served Piers Morgan roast pork with apricot and sage stuffing. David Cameron hosted an Ibiza-style rave for his wife's 40th. Theresa May dished up chicken lasagna and boiled potatoes while plotting a snap election. And Liz Truss barely had long enough for a quick snack. Recent Prime Ministers have used Checkers, their very big house in the country. They've been spared the chore of cooking thanks to the head chef, Graham Howarth. It's quite the gig. He told me how he swapped the military for Prime Ministerial menus. It's quite straightforward, really. Posts are ex-military. And I did 13 years in the Royal Air Force. And I was working out in Belgium in 2002 doing a little VIP job out there for the UK National Military Rep. And this became available um, as a post within the RAF. So I applied for it, interviewed, did a trial, um, and got the job as second chef in 2002. It's interesting. What, why is it a military thing? Is that just a tradition that everybody who works at Checkers is former military, or is it something about the job that requires that skill? No, I think it, it's just something traditionally, I think, is... Um, since Churchill's days, he used to employ all military staff. Um, so when I first arrived, it was, I would say, 95% military. 
Whereas now we're probably 95% the other way. And I imagine that being in Chequers in the beautiful Buckinghamshire countryside is very different to being on the front line serving in the military. So give us a sense of what the job involves. What does your day look like? Every day is different. One, one question that I always get asked is, what do you do when the PM's not there? Because it's a weekend retreat. We have a very active set of trustees that entertain quite a lot. Um, we do things off the radar that you'll never hear about. Charity stuff, garden parties that get op- you know we get opened to, to various charities. Um, so we can do charity dinners to, to open gardens, all to help local and national charities. Uh, we feed all the staff. We do lots of, of bits and pieces from Downing Street where they might get in touch and say, we've got a world leader come in and we'd like to bring them out to check us. Um, so every day is different. Every day is different. And the, the point you're making about the trustees is because it's a it's a sort of gift bestowed to the nation, but it's run as a charitable trust with trustees as a sort of gift to the Prime Minister to be able to use it as a country retreat. So it's sort of, there's stuff going on there all the time, with or without the Prime Minister. Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. So, so, so what did you say, 2002? That's a lot of Prime Ministers you've done. Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, David Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, now Rishi Sunak. Does your life change very much between... Different prime ministers? Yeah, definitely. Um, absolutely. And, and I think a lot of people say, oh, have you stayed in one job for 21 years? Every time there's a new resident, it's like starting again. They're all different. They all have the different likes, likes and we have to get to the bottom of that and almost run a, a, a weekend or a recess or um, when they're here, basically to their likes and not, not to what we wish to be cooking or, you know, so it can be just good, wholesome family cooking. Uh, we might have dinner parties thrown in where we kick it up a little bit. So, yeah, it changes every time, every time there's a new new prime minister. Are you able to give me any sense of some of those differences? Is it that, you know, Gordon Brown liked stodgy food and David Cameron wanted fine dining? They all want their eggs boiled to different temperatures. Give us a sense, if you can, of, of some of those differences. Um, It's a difficult one. I can't really discuss individual tastes and likes and dislikes um they all like my cooking (laughs) (laughs) or they do by the end of the time exactly right exactly that's a very politician's answer oh give us a sense of like what's the biggest meal you've cooked for um sit down so if we're talking sit down dinners we can manage just about a hundred in in one of the rooms that gets cleared out and we put round tables in there it's quite a way away from the kitchen so logistically it can be difficult so we have to tailor menus but yeah we can do a, a hundred sit down probably 120 with all the different extra dining with, with staff and and people but yeah probably 120 uh 100 to 120 sit down barbecues for about 150 200 and they tend to be quite political things so they like prime minister brings all of their mps or something or people who've worked on a campaign or something like that yeah i mean i, I don't think i'm speaking out of turn when i say that boris johnson through barbecues to thank everybody as as he was leaving uh, and they were for about 150 at a time now i've i've t- we, we have a sort of family barbecue most like uh, in our house most summers maybe 50 or 60 that's a bit of a palaver i mean that's i suppose where your military background comes in a, a barbecue for 150 200 people that is a military operation isn't it yeah it's tough <laughs> you start running out of food and the coal's going cold <laughs> it's just smoke and mirrors isn't it it's clever planning giving trade secrets away but we'll blanch cook so cook sausages without any colour. Yeah, obviously make salads in massive bulk, yeah. and we've got the fridge space to be able to do that. 
Uh, we'll have a member of staff running, so just running from the barbecues back to the fridges. Uh, but yeah, just just very clever cooking. Just so you cook the sausages uh, like a bit, but without them changing colour on the outside. So they'll, they're basically cooked, and then you're just browning them on the coals afterwards. Yeah, we'll cook, cook them to a, a really low temperature so that they're, they're thoroughly cooked through, and then take them out to the barbecue. And so rather than waiting twenty minutes for a sausage to cook, we're just literally getting some colour onto them and. That's a top tip. That's a top tip. And when you said about if you've got them all in the big dining room, it's a long way from the kitchen. How do you, you said about changing the menu to tweak. What does that mean in terms of choosing what to serve based on the number of people and how far it is from the kitchen? Just being clever. Um, make sure we've got a cold starter and a cold dessert. Uh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. So, and then that gives us the opportunity to focus directly on the main course. Um, it's easier to put 90 hot plates out than it is to do 90 hot starters, hot mains and, and hot desserts. You're not doing souffles on those those occasions? Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have less hair than I have now. <laughs> when I said about biggest meal, what, what, is there a meal that you felt the most pressure for? Partly because of the guests or the occasion or the, or the number of people? Yeah, I would probably say um, the Queen came in 2013. And it was a very intimate, small lunch that David Cameron hosted. Uh, and I felt a lot of pressure on that one. But generally, I mean, when, when some of the events come in from number 10, uh, they can be various world leaders from crown princes to presidents. So that they're always, I'm not a stressy kind of chef, but the, the, you do start to feel the pressure. And I, I might have a few sleepless nights worrying about once it's all gone, no problem. I'll, I'll yeah. open a beer and, and relax a little bit. But yeah, they can be. I think we have different kind of pressures to, to what you might face in a, um, a restaurant that's open seven days a week doing, you know, two meal services. Um, but the pressure's still there. And it's, you know, we're talking big people that sit around the table. So it can be quite in that way it's a different type of pressure i get that in a restaurant where you're doing service after service and you're trying to get the meals out and keep up the quality that's the sort of you know there's clearly pressure there because you want to fall behind or you don't want to you know, serve anyone a bad meal but yeah i can see when you're doing a, a essentially a dinner party everyone's at a dinner party for four people when those four people are the prime minister and his wife and the queen and her husband that's a different sort of pressure and when you're doing that do you choose the food does the prime minister choose the food does the Queen choose? Because, I mean, in terms of pulling rank, the Queen pulls rank. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll sit down and write menus between us. As a, I've got a very small kitchen team. Um, and between us, we'll take the last hour of a day together and go and sit down with notepads and, and start thinking about what we're going to do. Obviously, seasonal comes into it. What we've got growing on the estate comes into it. We have a small gardener's team that, that we've got a kitchen garden. So they'll grow us some produce, not all, but so yeah, we'll we'll sit down and we'll we'll start to write menus and put ideas down, and then I'll start pinging them across. But the ultimate choice comes from generally the prime minister because they're the host. That's that's the beauty of anybody's hosted before. You get to choose ultimately. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There are times where where we've sent them off to um, the visiting dignitary as well, just so that we can make sure. So if they've been somewhere the night before. Um, being hosted so say you've been to to the palace or anywhere else or an embassy and then they're coming here we just make sure that they're not getting lamb the night before and lamb for lunch the next oh of course because you don't want it oh no not chicken again yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah so we, we do liaise quite a bit 
One thing, actually, you talked about the menus and season and that sort of thing. Obviously, politicians love it, particularly if they're hosting counterparts and that sort of thing. You know, historical, you know, quite often the gifts they exchange or where they have meetings, they're sort of historical residences. Do you ever look back at old menus? Has there ever a sort of looking at things that your Churchills or whatever served when you're when you're thinking about menus? Being honest, I would say no. I, th- I think British cuisine has probably boomed in the last 30 years. Um, I think before that, we weren't very inventive. I might get shouted down for this. <laughs> I, I do think that we've come on leaps and bounds uh, cuisine-wise. So historical, I would say no. Traditional, I would say yes. Yeah, I suppose if you go back, like you said, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, it's probably just a lot of meat and two veg. Yeah, yeah. Probably quite classical French, some of the, some of the old menus that we've got in the archives. We, we always try to remain as British as we can. So if, if dignitaries coming from overseas, we'll try and make sure we tailor quite a British menu and then bring seasonal into it as well. How quickly can you turn stuff around? How much notice do you normally get on on, a, on a, an important dinner, if not a big one? Um, an important dinner, we, we like to try and ask for at least about a week's notice so we can start putting menus together. We've had, you know, you were just talking about last minute things. We've had things literally thrown on us um, with hours to go and it's it's it'll be like what can you do as opposed to we want this it's like what can you do but we've had the alternative as well we've had cancellations because of of their important job we could have had a dinner lined up and and we're pretty much ready to go and then something will happen worldwide and they're needed to fix a, a a world problem um and dinner then is pretty uh not not important anymore i suppose so so what happens then you eat well those nights well, we, we rescue what we can and freeze. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Staff, staff have some good meals. <laughs> <laughs> what about when something has gone wrong or almost gone wrong? Anyone who's cooked knows that things go wrong. And clearly, if you're cooking for a lot of people or very important people and the pressure's on, sometimes things go wrong. Yeah, of course. Of course. And, and we would be no different to that. You, you like to think that as a professional, you can deal with things and fix things. But I would say without naming names, information. So I, I, we just spoke about how we liaise with different people to get the information back to us. Um, so we'll send menus across. We'll ask for dietaries, all the sort of stuff we need to get as a head start so we can start prepping and planning. And, uh, and sometimes it can be very, very slow coming back. Um, and I get that because... Downing Street's a busy place busy. and the Prime yeah. Minister's job's very busy. But for us, the main thing for us is to make sure that that dinner on Friday night, Thursday night, whenever it is, goes without a hitch. And we had a dinner where the information had come through really late and um, we were making dessert in a pastry frame. So it's where you layer the, the, the dessert into a frame, blast freeze it, cut it, portion it. And the guests were arriving and we were still constructing pudding in this pastry frame. So I would say that's probably the closest I've come to Throwing in the towel. <laughs> and you definitely can't tell me who was responsible for that stressful moment. No, definitely not. <laughs> not if I want to stay employed. Um, <laughs> we were just talking about this in the kitchen earlier. Um, and it's a tricky one because after 21 years, yeah, of course, there's, there's lots of little stories, but without incriminating myself, <laughs> um, it's difficult. But there's one that we, we dine out on quite a bit. Um, 2011 and... President Obama came over and we were asked to do a barbecue in the garden at Downing Street. So we were pretty excited by that. He was a cool guy. 
and as the event was building up, I'm thinking, I've heard nothing. No one's asked for menus. No one's, you know, what are we doing here? So started to make contact and find out. And it turned out that we were literally to walk in. The PM wanted it to look comfortable. So he wanted it to be with people that he knew. So we literally walked in. There was an event company taking care of everything. So they'd done days and days worth of prep, you know, 16 hour days. And we walked in in our pristine chef's whites, manned the main barbecue um, live on TV. <laughs> President Obama walks down with his wife and, and David Cameron walked down and we shook hands and, and we just barbecued for about 45 minutes. And then again, once the cameras had all turned off, we just handed everything over and came back to checkers. Wow. So you didn't have to do any of the prep? No, no, it was fabulous. We got some great pictures. It was a great event and it was wonderful to have Barack and Michelle uh, there. It was also probably the first time in history as we stood behind that barbecue that I can say a British Prime Minister has given an American President a bit of a grilling. So uh, I'm going to hold on to that. So Mr. Prime Minister, thank you not only for the barbecue but for the opportunity to spend this very productive time at uh, number 10 with you and your team. Have you ever been starstruck by anyone who's turned up? I would say de definitely 110% the Queen. We got to meet her out um, in the front doorway. Uh, we had handshake. It was all on camera. And I was, you know, when you dry up and you just know that. And I knew that as head chef, she was going to want to speak to me. Um, and I just had nothing. I was just it was like <laughs> the Sahara. Um, I've been lucky that I've cooked for so many world leaders, celebrities, stage, screen, sport. Um, I'm a massive sports fan. I was always promised that they would try to get Beckham here for me and it's never materialised. <laughs> if he came, I'd be the guy holding onto his leg and not letting him go. <laughs> Maybe that's why they've not bought him. They don't want a seed. <laughs> yeah. And again, um, very, very polarising, but when well, President Trump and came... I'm pleased to welcome the President of the United States to Chequers today on his first official visit to the United Kingdom. It was from right here at Checkers that Prime Minister Churchill phoned President Roosevelt after Pearl Harbor. We got to meet him and have a photo opportunity as well, and that was pretty spectacular. And I suppose just because the sheer, you know, everyone's seen the sort of entourage, just the sheer number of people that come with the president, that's not just you cooking lunch for the Prime Minister and the president. Do you have to do everyone else in the entourage as well? Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that might be, it might just be uh, an out mess with, a sandwich buffet or but yeah yeah everybody needs food <laughs> everyone needs eating and do you think the prime ministers ever come and help you out in the kitchen just you know roll up the sleeves and and fry an egg no um we had one that threatened and he threatened on on more than one occasion that they liked to cook and and came to the kitchen in, in the early days and was wowed by you know a commercial kitchen being at, at the back of checkers and, and always threatened to come and do some cooking and i i held my hands up and I said, if you want to come in, we'll order everything for you. We'll move out of the way. You know, you can, but it, no, it never materialised. I'm going to bet that that was David Cameron. I'm not saying a word. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suppose once you get into a place like this, Matt, and you've got a team of chefs that, that are doing it for you. Yeah. Um, and you get a bit of downtime. You know, we've, we've just touched on the fact that they're busy people. Yeah. Yeah, why... Why have a dog and bark yourself? Uh, what about you? I mean, I've always interested in this with chefs. You spend your whole time cooking and thinking about food and other people. Do you enjoy food yourself? If you could pick the menu, what would you have on a menu for a meal? I, I mean, it, it totally depends what mood I'm in. I, I'm a massive outdoor cooking fan. Uh, I love slow and slow barbecue cooking. 
Um, I've got a pizza oven in my garden. So I'm always entertaining, always cooking. You know, people come around. And, and when I invite people around, they come around to eat my food. Let's be honest, they don't come for the company. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I was kicking it up a little bit, I, I don't know. I like a, a lamb fillet or a beef fillet with dauphinoise potatoes. Probably my favorite Ooh, potato nice. dish. I'm traditionally pastry trained. So that's where I started. So I love a good dessert. I'll often, when I go to a restaurant, I start back to front and see whether I'm leaving space. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You've got to check the puds first. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And is that something that you just can't stand? If you saw it on a menu or you went round to somebody else's house and they served it up, is there, is there your, the, the food that you, re- you really hate? Yeah, I'm not a big fish fan. Okay. Controversially. Especially fishy fish or, you know, oily fish, salmon. Yeah, I can't stand it. And I've tried. And I, and I have to try it and have to taste it when we're cooking to make sure that it's okay, but I don't enjoy it. Does that it. mean you might sometimes try to steer the Prime Minister away from another summery salmon starter? No, absolutely not. Absolutely <laughs> not. No, we, we, do a lot, we do a lot of fish. I just don't personally enjoy eating it that much. But there are, like I say, there's a small kitchen team, so other people try it. And if you were given the run of the place, who's the Prime Minister for the day, and you could have anyone you, you wanted round for your sort of fancy dinner party, I think we've established the Queen and David Beckham are definitely coming. Uh, David Beckham's <laughs> top of the list. Um, yeah, I've got a severe man crush on, on Beckham. So, yeah, definitely top of the list. Who else would you have? Okay, we've already touched on I'm a big sports fan. I'm an Oldham Athletic supporter for my sins. Um, so, Joe Royal, he was... Oldham manager in the late 80s and early 90s when we were actually half decent and did two seasons in the Premier League. We're now non-league, so it dropped like a stone. So it'd definitely be Joe Royal because he oversaw the most successful period um, in my team's history. Um, meatloaf. Wow. wow. Yeah. <laughs> Michael Liade. Yeah. I'm a huge meatloaf fan and it, it stems from a babysitter from when I was about seven or eight used to take us to watch the Speedway in Manchester at, at Bellevue. And um, Meatloaf would be on the cassette player playing on the way. And uh, that's stuck with me ever since. I've been to see him twice live in London. Yeah, I love him. And I reckon he'd be good fun. That's a, that's a hell of a, a mix. So you've got Joe Royal, David Beckham and Meatloaf. <laughs> that's, a hell of a, that's a hell of a thing. And what's it like? Explain to people what Checkers is, is like. Because is I can sort of see it in the background behind you. It's all wood panelling and lead line windows and that behind you. As a place to go and work every day. What's it like? If you ever see, is it haunted? Supposedly. I mean, it, it, it dates back, um, and I'm not the greatest historically, but I think it dates back to the 12th century that there was a, a house on site from the 12th century. It just gradually got built up bigger and bigger. Depending on who you speak to, there are, there are plenty of people that claim to have had ghostly goings on, including some of the guests in Cameron's time. I think it's been written yeah, about. Yeah. In the- We've got staff that have seen things. Um, and, and I was the biggest non-believer in all that sort of stuff. It was nonsense. But yeah, I, th- I think I saw something in the kitchen a good few years back. And again, total non-believer. But I left pretty sharpish that day. It wasn't David Cameron coming down wanted to have a go on the knives, was it? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Definitely not. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've got a, we've got a room called the prison room, which is where uh, Lady Jane Grey, I think, was imprisoned many many moons ago so that there's every possibility but as a place i would say that those of us that have been here a long time get very blasé about it we come to work i've got a room upstairs where i get changed go back down to the kitchen and every now and again we'll get asked to help with a bit of furniture removal or and then you walk around and you're like yeah wow this is 
pretty special. It's amazing, actually. Like every, I think every prime ministerial memoir or biography or whatever I've read, they all talk about how going to Chequers, getting out of London, getting out of Downing Street, getting away from the constant, oh, Prime Minister, just one more thing, just one more thing. And actually, you know, relaxing a bit, having someone who can cook your tea, because in Downing Street, there isn't the same sort of setup with a chef and all that. Even though, you know, the White House, the President has that all the time and that sort of stuff. You know, just being able to stop and breathe is so important and actually quite often quite big things, big decisions or whatever are made just because they've been able to stop and relax and it's yeah it's it yeah it happens uh all the way through oh great it's been absolutely brilliant to speak to you what a, what a what a fascinating job and surrounded by so much so much history as well um graham howarth head chef at checkers thanks so much for joining us on time thank you no problem thanks matt nice to talk to you that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes but for now for me Matt Cholly is goodbye this episode of politics without the boring bits is brought to you by Luton Rising owners of London Luton Airport the UK's most socially impactful airport find out more at lutonrising.org.uk even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.